Jones, Australia's leading voice. Well, good evening. Welcome to a new week. My thanks to Jake for the excellent work he did last Thursday night in my absence. Always good to welcome fresh young talent. Tonight we'll get you thinking. Plenty for you that I'm sure you'll enjoy. My warning to the Albanese, Albanese government is this. You'd better start governing. Stop carrying on as if you're in opposition. You've been in government for 93 days, a long time. You've done nothing except talk about reviews in the never-never somewhere down the track. And now you've found something with which to belt the previous Prime Minister. But the public are bored stupid with these tactics. We know the problems concerning the cost of living, prices and inflation, but one critical industry is nearly on its knees. I'll have something to say tonight about it. The construction industry, to put it bluntly, they're going broke. And there's not a whimper from anyone in government, but it affects us all. I'll return to the issue that Jake raised on Thursday night with Dave Sharma about the Solomon Islands and why this is critical. And you'll be left wondering how 1.8 million voters on May 21 voted for the Greens. In relation to China and the Pacific, the Greens are dangerously off their heads. I'll have something to say also about this mob at the World Economic Forum with all their damaging theories about time to reset the world. The only problem is they can't hack debate. Challenged to debate about their misguided views, they back off. I will prove all of that with something I have to say later in the program. All of this creates a climate, though, amongst voters out there of total mistrust of our institutions. How often do you silently say that government, the media, business banks don't speak for me? I'll talk to Professor James Allen about that. And there's a serious crisis in public trust. Pauline Hanson will have a little bit of fun because I'm going to raise with her a dozen questions she won't be able to answer about the Indigenous voice to Parliament because there are no answers. We're expected to vote on something about which there is no detail. Pauline coming up later in the program. So plenty on the menu tonight. Thank you for joining me. You are with Alan Jones on ADH TV. Well, at the beginning of a new week, let me make a simple but blunt point. It's time the Albanese government got on with the business of governing. I'm happy to stand corrected. But can you immediately recall a single decision this government has made since the election on May 21, which has benefited the broad cross-section of voting Australians? I can only think of one, which is the reinstatement of $750 to people who lose work during to, due to enforced coronavirus isolation. $450 if you lost between 8 and 20 hours, and more than 20 hours, $750. Hello? Will someone uncouple the gravy train? The Morrison farce about secret appointments to five federal ministries has reached its use-by date. If the parliament doesn't resume until September 5, and the Albanese government thinks it can pursue all this nonsense with a censure motion against the former prime minister, or listen to the utterly irrelevant Adam Bant wanting to refer the former prime minister to the Privileges Committee for Investigation, the public have had a gutful of this. My message to the Labor Party is simple. Stop trying to promote your political interests at the expense of the other side and give some consideration to the concerns of struggling Australians who so far have had no relief whatsoever from your government. I spoke three weeks ago about an obvious issue affecting too many Australians. That's the housing crisis. Not the voice, 
Not the absurd energy bill where the energy minister Bowen, oh, what about him, said last week he was going to overhaul fuel efficiency standards. I'll say something about this tomorrow. How would he do that? Listen to this. Give Australians better access to options which allow them to never lift the nozzle on a petrol pump again, unquote. These people are drinking something. A National Electricity Vehicle Summit last week. There's another crisis, unaddressed electric vehicles. More of that tomorrow. But the housing industry, I've made the point that in the last 12 months, the construction industry has copped it. Supply chain disruptions, skilled labour shortages, skyrocketing material costs, extreme weather events, such that a host of companies in the construction industry have gone to the wall in the last 12 months. The result is suppliers, small business and tradies are owed significant amounts of money and they have no future income. Not one person in the Albanese government has opened his mouth in relation to this ongoing crisis. You will remember during coronavirus, I criticised heavily the draconian measures that were taken, locking down everything, crippling the retail, hotel, leisure, hospitality and commercial sector by government edict. We were given no say and the construction industry copped it. New South Wales and Victoria shut down for two weeks. So here we are today where the residential building industry and the commercial building industry are up to their necks in trouble. Nowhere to turn. Government's worried about their defeated opposition instead of ministering to those they're meant to represent. As I said, builders are going broke, but subcontractors don't know which builders are about to collapse. So the subby doesn't know whether to tender. But if the subby gets no work, his solvency is under threat. Where is government seeking to restore solvency confidence in leading building companies? Or do we just see more and more of them go to the wall? This crisis, believe me, is more potentially damaging than the problem of higher interest rates. You might remember the global financial crisis, banks were under siege everywhere. The problem originated in America, where central government's social policy basically mandated the lending of money to individuals and entities that couldn't afford repayments. But in the new woke world, where the lion must lie down with the lamb, everyone was entitled to a loan. Well, the borrower went under and the banks went under. And Australians with deposits were worried about whether or not those deposits were secure or should they put their money under the bed. You might remember then Treasurer issued an Australian government guarantee for the first million dollars of bank deposits. And for his trouble, Wayne Swan was the World Finance Minister of the Year. Well, today we have builders who have tended on fixed prices, but the cost of materials has gone up. The availability of labour has gone down. Builders gave themselves a margin, but that's now proving inadequate. So as I said earlier, the casualties in the construction industry mount. What is the Albanese government's response? Well, they want to abolish the Australian Building and Construction Commission. Yet one arm of the commission forced major builders to pay subcontractors quickly. That protection has now been withdrawn by the new government. What happens to the subby? What happens to the industry? What happens to home building? And if huge numbers of builders have had a gutful, which they have, and plan to leave the industry, what happens to the massive infrastructure commitments made by the Albanese government? What happens to the massive housing shortfall? And how many years is it going to take to restore capacity and repair the damage? And if banks continue to play their selfish games, cutting back the amount that they'll lend 
on a new house by 10 to 15%, how much are they contributing to this looming crisis? The construction industry is a major national industry. It is in crisis right now, while the Albanese government is talking about Morrison and Censure Motions and The Voice and 82% renewables by 2030. I'll tell you something. It's Monday, August 22, 2022. You heard it here from me. If this keeps going, it won't belong before the new government is branded as irrelevant to the nation's pressing needs. And when that happens, the political exit door is not far away. Well, now, I've often spoken to Professor James Allen. He holds the oldest named chair at the University of Queensland, the Garrick Professor of Law. Before arriving in Australia, he spent many years teaching law at New Zealand's University of Otago. He's practiced law at the bar in London. He's enjoyed sabbaticals at the Cornell Law School at the Dalhousie Law School in Canada as the Bertha Wilson Visiting Professor in Human Rights and at the University of San Diego School of Law. Now, I say all that because few scholars in Australia have an understanding of the similarities between the American system and ours. Professor Allen writes splendidly for newspapers and weeklies, including The Australian, The Spectator Australia and Quadrant. Now, in the light of what we've seen here last week in relation to Scott Morrison, in what is undeniably an assault on the Westminster system of government, and then the pusillanimous endorsement by Governor General seemingly out of his depth, shift the focus to America, allegedly the leader of the world's democracies, headed by the cognitively impaired Joe Biden, only hanging on to his job because the vice president is arguably worse. And you have to wonder where the free world is heading. No one could argue against the proposition that Putin and Xi, to say nothing of Donald Trump's rocket man in North Korea, they are in the ascendant as never before. Well, Professor James Allen alludes to a recent Gallup poll in America, which released a survey revealing public trust, or more importantly, lack of it, in America's institutions. And consider how this applies to Australia. Professor Allen writes, and I quote, not surprisingly, given the policymaking fiasco over the last two and a half years, trust is down across the board. This is America. Only the military and small business garner a great deal or quite a lot of trust from over half of the respondents. And listen to this. Doctors, religious bodies, public schools, the Supreme Court, unions, the criminal justice system and banks all scored less than a third. Public trust. Professor Allen commends himself to me because in writing he doesn't pull any punches. He writes, quote, big business, the woke virtue signalling cowards who cave in to cancel culture came third lowest of all, unquote. This might be a good point in which to bring in Professor Allen. James Allen, thank you for your time. How true is that? Big business, the woke virtue signalling cowards who came in, cave in to cancel culture. They're everywhere, aren't they? From banks to big business, not small business, but without any analysis or debate, they just toe the line. Yeah, I'm not really sure, and thank you for having me, by the way, but I'm not really sure when the HR department of big corporations seem to take over all the decision-making. It's incredible. But James, on renewable energy, demonising coal-fired power, uh, in doing all of this, they pose threats to the shareholder value when the shareholder, more often than not, is your battler in Struggle Street. 
I think that's right. Well, I think we have to divide it. There are some companies who are making a killing out of renewable energy. So we leave those ones aside where it's all self-interest. Uh, they do seem to be caught up in the zeitgeist of the matter. I, I, I just, I, I am just surprised. It's just a bit like universities. You see the people who get to the top who are effectively the managerial class, they don't seem to have the same set of interests as the owners, the shareholding class, or you know, in universities, the people who work in the universities, or the students. And it's very hard to fix that. I think it's a real hard problem in, in corporate law uh, to deal with the managerial class. Well, they're effectively using other people's money to virtue signal. Yes, they are. I mean, do you think these people really know, though, how much they are disliked? I mean, big business in that poll, third lowest of all in terms of public trust, big business. Yep. Well, you know, I'm a very right of centre guy, but I have a fair bit of disdain for big business myself. So I'm not really I'm not really sure who likes them. And, and the police, I noticed that they were the third best. Do you think that's a consequence of the police being co-opted into what you've called the heavy handed thuggish enforcement of stupid, irrational lockdown rules? Well, they were they had the third best score, but it was still under 50 percent. So uh, it was in the context of, you know, they've lost a lot of respect. I mean, I grew up in a, a middle class house in Toronto where, the I, you know, I always thought the police were great. They had a hard job to do. Uh, when I went to law school, I would always defend the police against, you know, some of the left wing criminal law professors. But I lost an incredible amount of respect in the last two years when you see the what the police are doing to grandmothers and the people walking on the street. Yeah. Um, it was a disgrace. It was a disgrace, Absolutely. some of the police but, behavior but endor- during the pandemic. Endorsed by government. Endorsed by government. Directed by government. I mean, then you've got, I Directed mean, Xi and, Xi and Putin and these people must be laughing. Trust in the US president at 23%. But a lovely comment by you, Professor James Allen says, it makes you wonder if the quarter of respondents who have confidence in brain-addled Biden was smoking something when they were polled. But it's a terrible look for the Western world, isn't it? Yes, I mean he just he can't answer questions, and if, if it had been if it if it were a, a Republican president, the press would have hounded him out of office by now. He he has very little cognitive ability. It's obvious to everyone. Everyone knows it. And then most damning of all, the Americans have lost virtually all trust in the media. Newspapers, 16%. Television news, 11%. I mean, if you've got a media, though, uh, James, that raids Donald Trump's home but ignores Hillary Clinton, who deleted 33,000 emails before government officials could investigate them, more than 2,000 of them classified by the State Department, and the investigation of Hunter Biden by the FBI after four years going nowhere... James Allen, how could you possibly trust the media who failed to address that reality? I think it's even worse than what you said. It's not just they've completely ignored uh, Hillary Clinton and the Hunter Biden saga. Uh, We know the Russia collusion sort of scam involved lying to the FISA court. The last two FBI directors have either admitted to uh, lying or to leaks to the media. Nothing happens to them. Uh, meanwhile, you get raids, almost military-style raids, actually, uh, against Trump, against uh, his lawyer, his one-time lawyer, Giuliani, against his associate, Roger Stone. Um, I'm missing one. Uh, and and you don't see any, any raids against any Democrat for anything. And mm. after a while, it just it doesn't look like the equal uh, 
application of justice. Now that's the drive. And so there's a fair bit of anger in the U.S. And who can blame them, really? And, and there's anger here, too. I mean, basically, you're saying, Raul, all these institutions together and America's trust in them has sunk to 27 percent. And as you say, it's a Gallup poll and they lean left. Now, yeah, they lean left. Now, nowhere was this more... Yeah, they oversample Democrats. They yeah. oversample Democrats. Everyone knows it. That's right. Now, nowhere, and you, you and I have talked about this before, nowhere was this more obvious than in coronavirus, whereas you say, and I quote, Professor Gupta at Oxford University with a distinguished chair in epidemiology has a different view on how to respond to COVID that she sets out with two other world-class epidemiologists, but she was censored, but she was right. I mean, the public are not stupid. They understand this, don't they? Well, if you look at that great Barrington declaration that the three of them co-authored, one was from Oxford, Kaldorf, or sorry, one was from Harvard, Kaldorf, Gupta from Oxford, and uh, Jay Bhattacharya from Stanford. So these are people with credentials that dwarf any of the public health types here in Australia. And they said early on, this is a mistake. We should be focused our protection on the vulnerable, the uh, obese, and everyone else should be left alone. And there's 100 years of data that was, was the That's sort it. of playbook until yep. October, November of 2019. Mm. And if you, if you even pointed that out, you're a grandmother killer. Now, even some sensible right of center commentators in the Australian were making ridiculous claims in favor of lockdown. I think the, the epidemiologist from Sweden, Anders Tegnell, should get a Nobel Prize. He won't. But everything he did, you know, the, the cumulative excess deaths in Sweden are now pretty much the lowest in Europe. So that's from the start of the pandemic till yeah. now. You add up all the excess yeah. deaths per capita, yeah. everything Sweden's done, you know, they made some mistakes early on but no in terms lockdown. of old no age lockdown. homes, but everyone did. No lockdown. No lockdown. No lockdown. No lockdown. And like, like Florida. And Australia will soon be worse than Sweden. You say this is what happens. This is a very valid point that Professor makes. This is what happens when elites won't listen to opposing views. I must say I'll have something to say about that later on in the program to prove that point. But you make the point, James Allen, if you act like political thugs and censors, voters lose confidence in you and your supposed expertise. Just come back to Hunter Biden and the laptop. What would have happened if this had been one of Donald Trump's children? He'd be in jail right now. We all know it. We all know it. He'd be in jail. It would have certainly been public before the last election. Because remember, uh, and Miranda Devine, who, you know, from Australia, who now works for the New York Post, they had this information before the election. In the second debate, tr President Trump, then President Trump, talked about it. There were something like 23 former uh, intelligence officers, so senior people who all signed a letter saying this is Russian disinformation. They were lying. They knew that it was an actual, uh, they must have known that the laptop was real. Um, they kept it quiet before the election. Still nothing has happened. But if you imagine that a Republican candidate had a, had a child who um, was in the same situation, it would certainly have been all over the press and the uh, intelligence agencies would not have come to the defense of the uh, person contesting the election. Absolutely. And so you, you lose confidence that it's a level playing field. Absolutely. It's the same way that we, we, we criticize the ABC here for being unbalanced and they just don't even care. And neither does the Conservative Party. The, the Liberal Party gives them more money before the election. I don't understand what they're doing. No, agreed. I mean, you make the point the US press acts, you say, like the palace guard for the Democrats, and yet Biden can't read a teleprompter. 
He reads aloud instructions like repeat the line. It's written down there, but he thinks that's part of the script. Repeat the line. Uh, where, you know, where do you think we are heading in relation to this? Well, I don't think we're as uh, bifurcated as split down the middle as the Americans. I could be wrong. I mean, I, I feel that there's more trust in public institutions here. I mean, one of the things that shocked me during the pandemic was how sheep-like Australians were. I hate to say this, but it was very jarring and disappointing. You know, the, the level of compliance with idiotic rules that everyone could see were idiotic and turning in your neighbors for going for a walk. I mean, these are people who just lost all sense of uh, perspective. And and so in that sense, I, I don't think Australians have lost their, that we haven't developed the same distrust in government as the Americans, but it's certainly not healthy. We're, we're moving towards the Americans. Mm. I, mean, I still see people driving around in cars by themselves with a mask on. I don't know what theory of virology they're operating under, but if you're in a car by yourself, you don't need a mask. You don't need a mask anyway, but these people are crazy. And, mm. and so I, I think it's going to take years to recover from the, the propaganda onslaught that we got over the pandemic. Mm. Good to talk I'd to like you. to see an accountability. I'd like to vote them all out. Yeah, I agree. Every it's politician. Well, they have the, further, further, the further difficulty, of course, which you've alluded to, is the kind of freedoms that we used to have, just the freedom to have a different point of view. Uh, that's quashed as well. So we have it called cancel culture. You're cancelled if you dare to agree with the quote-unquote experts, and yet it's now been proven the experts weren't experts at all. James Allen, always good to talk to you. Thank you for your time tonight. That's Professor James Allen, Thank who's you, the Alan. Garrick Professor of Law at the University of Queensland. I thought Jake last Thursday night conducted an outstanding interview with Dave Sharma, the beaten Liberal candidate in the seat of Wentworth at the recent federal election. Apart from addressing with clarity and geopolitical problems, especially as they relate to our region, Dave Sharma offered proof again that the Liberal Party has talent, but under the previous leadership, that talent was never cultivated or encouraged. You see, in life, people without a lot of talent feel threatened by those who have it. One of the issues raised in that excellent interview was the concern that the Solomon Islands have signed a $100 million deal with the Chinese telecommunications giant Huawei to build more than 100 mobile phone towers, deepening its partnership with Beijing. They'll take a loan from a Chinese state-owned bank for the first time and tie a significant component of their communications infrastructure to the Chinese telecommunications giant Huawei. As you know, our government has banned Huawei, H-U-A-W-I, Huawei, from building 5G networks in Australia, as have Canada and America, because of security concerns. The Solomon Islands government said in a statement last week, and I quote, this proposal will be a, an historical financial partnership with the People's Republic of China since the two countries established diplomatic ties in 2019, as the two countries work closely to ensure the successful implementation and operation of the project, unquote. That's according to a Solomon Islands government statement. All this fewer than 2,000 kilometres from the Queensland coast. A further point to be made here is that the Prime Minister Solivare has asked that elections due next May be delayed until after the Pacific Games in November next year. As Eric Bagshaw reports, this has sparked claims by the opposition that Sogavare is attempting to engineer civil unrest, triggering an intervention by China's security forces to enable Sogavare to hold on to power. So, what's this mean for us? 
Obviously, the growing China strength in the region is at best daunting. China have the largest navy in the world, 355 ships and submarines, 355. Its naval battle force has more than tripled in size in two decades. In four years, China has built new vessels, new vessels, equivalent in tonnage to the entire Royal Australian Navy fleet. And they've done that every 18 months, new vessels. Its Coast Guard has doubled from 60 to 130 1,000 tonne ships in a decade. And over the next decade, China's nuclear warhead stockpile, estimated to be in the 200s last year, is projected to reach between 700 and 1,000 warheads. And every major city in Australia, including Hobart, is within range of China's missiles. Well, back to the Solomon Islands. Why the China focus and why should we be concerned? Well, China has established 20 outposts in the South China Sea. They've rejected The Hague's permanent Court of Arbitration verdict in 2016 on their claims to the historic rights in the South China Sea. In other words, their claims were rejected by The Hague, but China ignored the ruling. As I've said before on this program, they've used militia crewed fishing vessels to intrude into the Philippines' exclusive economic zone. They've imposed a national security law on Hong Kong, doing away with the commitment of one country, two systems. And as you know, they've inflicted tariff bans on Australian imports, barley, beef, coal, lamb, lobster, timber and wine. And China have issued a dossier of 14 disputes with Australia, which Australia, with which Australia, and they're suggesting that we should refrain from doing anything which actually is in our own interests. So the Solomon Islands are just the latest step in a long march by China. As Greg Sheridan told me at the time some months ago, quote, the signing of the China Solomon Islands Security Treaty is a very bad day for Australia, the worst day for our national security since the end of the Vietnam War. Greg said, there is no doubt that this is an epic failure of Australian policy, unquote. Solomon Islands government says the agreement won't lead to a Chinese military base, but what are the Chinese assurances worth? History needs to inform us. The Solomon Islands were regarded in World War II as the clutch point in the Pacific. It was where, in World War II, the Allies lined up against Japan at the biggest of the Solomon Islands, Guadalcanal. But Washington hasn't had an embassy in the Solomon Islands for nearly 30 years. Wouldn't that be a start? Re-establish an embassy. Beware, the problem worsens, which is one of the reasons I'm talking about this to you tonight. Watch the political alliances around Labor. The Greens argue that China doesn't pose a threat to Australia, and they have no problem with the Solomon Islands decision to form a security partnership with Beijing. The Greens want our military spending, which until recently has been totally inadequate. They want it to be slashed. The AUKUS agreement they want cancelled. They want Australia's nuclear submarine program to be axed. They want Pine Gap to be closed and the US Marines out of Darwin. That's the Greens. Their 27-year-old peace and disarmament spokesperson, Jordan Steele John, 27, he's been in the Senate for five years, do you mind, is on the record as saying, and I quote, I don't see China as a military threat to Australia, unquote, that Australia should butt out of affairs of the Pacific states, and that outfits like the Solomon Islands should be free to, quote, defend their territorial boundaries and build relationships, unquote. The final postscript. On May 21 this year, 12.2% of Australians gave their vote to the Greens. 1.8 million voters. We ask politicians to do their homework. 
in relation to the Solomon Islands in the Pacific and criticise them because they haven't. Is it too much to ask the voter to do some homework about the Greens as well? Look, I'm going to speak to Pauline Hanson regularly on this program because she represents more people than polls would have you believe. Pauline Hanson's been so demonised in this country that people will whisper that they agree with her, but they're frightened at dinner parties to proclaim their agreement. Remember when Pauline Hanson wasn't allowed a hall or a venue in which to express her views? And Australia has become more intolerant ever since. You dare not disagree with the experts. Before Pauline joins me, I noticed that the Labor Senator, Fatima Payman, part of a growing Muslim bloc in the federal parliament, with Ed Husik and Anne Ali of Labor and Mayreen Farouki of the Greens, Senator Payman was born in Kabul and her family fled the Taliban for Pakistan when she was two. Her grandfather was an MP in Afghanistan. Her family was super rich. Her father was studying medicine. But when they eventually got to Australia, the father who'd been training to be a doctor worked at a recycling pit and as a kitchen hand and as a taxi driver. It's not a bad story. 27-year-old Senator Payman was asked the usual provocative question meant to demonise Pauline Hanson. And the question was, how do you feel about being in the same chamber as Pauline Hanson, unquote? I find the question disgusting. But she said she'd like to have a cup of tea with Pauline. Pauline joins me. Pauline, thank you for your time. Would you have a cup of tea with Fatima Payman? Oh, give me a gin and tonic. I prefer that one. <laughs> and it's an, congratulate her on actually winning the spot. I've got no problem with that at all. But you don't make a comment wanting to have a cup of tea with another colleague um, from the Senate through the media. If she was serious, contact my office if you want to actually catch up with me if you fed income about it. All right. She said, we're both here for the same reason, to serve the Australian public. We're both here to make a difference. What are your thoughts? She seems a reasonable lady. It's a hell of a backstory, isn't it? Well, it is. You know, the struggles. I've been to Kabul. I went over there with the Australian Army. Um, the, the fact is that she's won her seat. She has the right to be in the, on the floor of Parliament. She probably doesn't agree with my views. I don't know. Um, we need to sort of talk to each other if that be the case. Yeah. But she is a person to be respected. She is a senator. Good I've got you. no problem with that. Good the same you. as my position should be respected as well. Absolutely. You do have to separate people like Fatima Payman from the militant Islamic behaviour from which her family escaped, don't you? Most definitely, and that's what I've always said, Alan, is that fundamentalists and pushing their agenda and ideology, which is incompatible with our way of life. And if she is terribly opposed to the fundamentalist um, Taliban and what they stand for, she hasn't got an enemy in me. I'll actually, you know, stand beside her. Yes, yes. It can be no fun fleeing the Taliban and losing everything. I've always found Ed Husik, a very common sense Australian, in reaching out to this growing Muslim bloc in the parliament. What would you say to them, Pauline? Don't forget where you are. Don't forget our values and, and the country that you have come to, you fled to. Her father fled here for a better way of life and brought his family. Don't turn your back on the culture or who we are as a people, as a nation. And never forget where you come from, why you fled that nation, and to ensure that this country never turns into the place that you fled. Good on you. Brilliant stuff. Brilliant stuff. Brilliant stuff. On unemployment, you've said that those sitting on the dole should get a job. May not the problem be, Pauline, that we spend over $140 billion, B for billion, 
$1,000 a year on education, and yet many of these people are unemployable. So if they get off their backsides, yeah. how do we know that they're actually capable of being productive? You were terribly right with that. Our educational standards are below. The 15-year-olds in Australia, actually 50%, less than 50% can't even um, reach the basic standards for maths and science in our school system. We are two years behind. Those 15-year-olds are two years behind countries such as China and Singapore in our educational levels. We've allowed people through um, to become teachers who are well below the standards Absolutely. themselves. Absolutely. And uh, this is the problem that we have. The governments have allowed it. We actually need to address our educational standards in Australia. These people have are unemployable by all means, and they've made themselves unemployable because we're going in the fourth generation, people on the dole. They see their parents not working. They see it as a way of life. I've put to this, this to the previous government, we should be only paying welfare to those people on an average of, say, two out of five years. You have to work three of those years. You can, you know, if you can't find a job, two of those years, well, then, you know, <clears throat> then we'll support you with the doll. It is not a way of life. We've got to get tough. We've got to show that we're fed and combat this, and you cannot keep draining the coffers paying out welfare to these people that just consider it as a way of life for themselves for the rest of their life. Yeah, to our viewers out there, you see, this is Pauline Hanson. How on earth is what she said controversial? How can that possibly be controversial? You can't drain the coffers paying out welfare to people who want to make welfare their way of life. Pauline, there's a critical skills shortage. The Labor government is thinking of bringing in 200,000 skilled migrants up from the coalition's 160,000. What are your views on that? You can't because, Alan, I've always said, um, if you bring more people into the country, it's a drain on our infrastructure, roads, hospitals, schools, nursing homes, um, just everything, even our housing. Australians can't find housing themselves, let alone bring more people into the country. There has to be a balance. And I know businesses are screening out for skilled migrants. I've known for years, that's why I pushed with the government to introduce the apprenticeship scheme, which they took my lead after I, I had to take them screaming and kicking to start up an apprenticeship scheme. That was in 2018. Since then, they've They've put in over a hundred thousand apprentices, supported by the government, paying you know part of the wage for it. Until we open up more TAFE colleges, agricultural colleges, mm. training centres for mm. the youth, get them off the dole, and get pay them, them away from universities, rather than dole payment, get, pay get, them to actually do an apprenticeship. Yeah, yeah, get them away from universities. I mean, parents have got to stop believing that some degree at the university, some piece of paper, is going to be a manuscript for making sure they get a job. I mean, there's nothing wrong. We need electricians, we need tradesmen everywhere, and they're viable jobs and they're well-paid jobs. We've got to change the mentality, the superiority of a university education as opposed to an education and a skill. I just want to go back to this point that you made then. I was just listening to what you said and say it again. You're saying unemployment benefits should only be available for two years out of every five for a recipient capable of working so that people are incentivised to gain employment. Anyone listening to you? 
Correct. Um, no, the government weren't interested at the time. They're all terrified of losing votes if they head down this path. But there has to be, we have to start looking at turning this around, Ellen. We've got about 950,000 people in Australia who are collecting unemployment benefits or youth allowance. It is ridiculous when we have businesses screaming out for labour, sure, you know, um, farmers wanting labour. I also believe that pensioners and independent retirees should be able to work without being penalised and losing or Correct. losing any part of their pension. Correct. Let them go and work. Correct. And this would actually create income, give them some stability, give them yep. something to yep. do with their lives. Yep. They are quite capable of working. I like the older Australian to actually work. Yes. The mature person, their intelligence, their ability, their work ethics, they've got so much going for them. And um, give them the ability Absolutely. to work. Even those independent retirees, let them make reliable. money. Don't penalise them. And they're reliable. Yep, we, I've said that here many times, Pauline. Let, there's an army of people out there. They're called retired people. They're not going to go to work because they lose the pension to which they're entitled. Pauline is saying, keep your pension, go out and work. More tax to the government because they'll pay tax on the work, but they won't have their pension reduced. Now, Pauline, you've said you wanted to be the voice of the no case for the voice. Now, I don't know, I'm gonna ask you a couple of questions here, Pauline, and please don't be offended, which I am certain you can't answer. Not like Pauline Hanson not to have an answer, but here we go. This is like pick a box and Bob Dyer. So first question, Pauline, what will the voice actually do? Alan, I've no idea. <laughs> okay, first question. Second question, who will be able to stand as a candidate, Pauline? I don't know. Who will be able to vote? Um, good question. Okay. <laughs> I have no idea. See? Another one. Will there be any elections? Well, I'm stumped on that one. I have I have no idea. <laughs> there you are. So here we go. We're not finished yet. So will this voice be advisory? I don't know, Alan. Mm -hmm. Will it have legislative powers? Oh, we're yet to find that out, aren't, I? aren't we? It. That's it. Will they pay their own way or will they be on parliamentary salaries? <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> like, ads that cost us over That's a billion it. dollars. So, answer, um, don't know. Yeah. So, will, yeah. will the voice be subject to the courts and ordinary laws? Good question. I have no idea. No, no idea. We're just proving the fact. No. They're proving the fact. No idea means you, you vote no. I mean, will this voice exist forever or will it be a fixed term? Alan, none of this has been discussed. I have no idea. They've no never idea. put this forward. We don't know what they're putting towards Absolutely. the people to vote for. And I tell you, the people out there, if you believe that this is going to create reconciliation, it's going to pull us together, then you're a bloody fool because it's not. If you really trust the politicians, what they're going to give you to vote on that day when this comes to a referendum, well, then you want to think twice about how you're going to vote because I've just answered and I've followed this. I can't answer your questions and I don't believe the government will be able to answer them either. Absolutely. So if you go and blindly vote for yes, you're an absolute fool and you could be destroying the future of this nation and your children and grandchildren's future. 100%. Well done, Pauline. Great stuff. So in other words, Pauline, I mean, she's au fait with this stuff, as am I. I can't answer any of the questions I asked Pauline either. I mean, we're going to have a special set of laws for one class of the community. And so you have to understand out there why 
We won't be given any detail because if we got answers to any of those questions, people would certainly vote no. So why do members of major political parties, the media, every known and unknown celebrity, every multimillionaire say, we must have the voice with no detail? No detail. Well, I've got to tell you, not for me. Let me just say this. <clears throat> I want you to go to the Constitution, Section 5126 of the Australian Constitution, the referendum of 1967, and the government has the ability now to make specific laws for any race. So if they need to do anything, use that section of the Constitution. You don't need to set up another body. Good on you. Great to talk to you, Pauline. Keep at it. You're doing wonderful work. Always good to talk. Talk to you next week. There she is, Pauline Hanson. Well, yeah, there she is. And who could disagree with any of that, you see? But of course, you're not allowed alternative views in this country and that has to change. And this woman is the agent of that necessary change. Now, here's something you won't hear about anywhere else except on this program, because in the woke world, there are certain views you're not entitled to hold. Tell me about it. I know all about that. And there are certain things you're not allowed to say and don't dare differ from the so-called received wisdom of the experts. I'm sure you're familiar with this outfit called the World Economic Forum. This is the mob who meet in Davos every year. In its mission statement, the World Economic Forum says it is, quote, an independent international organisation committed to improving the state of the world by engaging business, political, academic and other leaders of society to shape global, regional and industrial agendas, unquote. Mm. That's so. Well, the founder is this fellow, Klaus Schwab, a German economist. He said in 2020, and I quote, the pandemic represents a rare but narrow window of opportunity to reflect, reimagine and reset our world. All aspects of our societies and economies must be revamped from education to social contracts and working conditions, unquote. Note the words reset our world. This bloke Schwab is the founder of this World Economic Forum and all our woke business and political leaders make the pilgrimage every year. Quote, all aspects of our societies and our economies must be revamped, unquote. Education? Huh, that's happening, isn't it? The denial of freedoms? Read coronavirus. Schwab says explicitly, we need a great reset of capitalism. Now, remember the other odious individual, the late Morris Strong, the godfather of climate change, said in 1992, I quote, we may get to the point where the only way of saving the world will be for industrialised civilization to collapse. Isn't it our responsibility to bring this about? Unquote. And Schwab, the founder of this World Economic Forum, says we need a great reset of capitalism. I mean, when the hell are we going to wake up? There is another ship on the political horizon, Clintel, as in climate intelligence. It's an independent foundation that operates in the fields of climate change and climate policy. It was founded in 2019 by an emeritus professor of physics, Gus Berkut, a Dutch engineer who's worked for the oil and gas industries, working with the science journalist, Marcel Kroc. Well, on August 10, 12 days ago, an opinion piece was posted by the World Economic Forum, authored by a woman, Inbal Goldberger. And to put it simply, she was arguing that artificial intelligence should be used to manage online disinformation. Well, in stepped the Friends of Science, which is a non-profit 
advocacy organisation based in Canada, which rejects the so-called scientific consensus that human beings are largely responsible for the currently observed global warming. Now, whatever their merits, Friends of Science are merely saying to this World Economic Forum, which apparently endorses the notion that artificial intelligence must be used to manage online disinformation, Friends of Science are saying, let the World Economic Forum engage in open civil debate on their climate misinformation in the old-fashioned way, in person, with Clintel, the climate intelligence outfit, which seeks to communicate objectively and transparently to the general public what facts are available about climate change and climate policy. So the Friends of Science are not running away from debate. They're saying to the World Economic Forum, let's debate your misinformation on so-called global warming. Indeed, they're calling for open civil debate. Friends of Science say the World Economic Forum regularly engages in climate misinformation, noting that they gave Greta Thunberg a public stage and a stack of media coverage over her I want you to panic and our house is on fire commentaries. Friends of Science are rightly saying Thunberg's comments terrified millions of children and adults worldwide. But in testimony to the US Congress on April 21 last year, Thunberg stated that there is no science behind her comment. It was just a metaphor. Friends of Science are saying that at no point did the World Economic Forum or any of its bevy of big tech and media mogul trustees step up to apologise for foisting fear on citizens of the world. And as Friends of Science say, the World Economic Forum in its mission statement says it's committed, quote, to improving the state of the world, unquote. Friends of Science say, how does scaring millions of people accomplish that goal? Well, back on January 20, 2020, Clintel, the climate intelligence think tank based in the Netherlands, sent a letter to the president of the World Economic Forum calling for engagement on the issue of the claimed climate emergency. Clintel wrote, quote, despite heated political rhetoric, we urge all world leaders to accept the reality that there is no climate emergency. There is ample time to use scientific advances to continue improving our society. Meanwhile, we should go for adaptation. It works, whatever the causes of climate change are, unquote. Clintel further argued, we also invite you, that's the World Economic Forum, to organise with us a constructive open meeting between world-class scientists on both sides of the climate debate. Such an event complies with the sound and ancient principle that all pertinent parties should be fully heard. January 2020. To date, Friends of Science say that Clintel, the climate intelligence think tank, has had no response from the World Economic Forum. So the brainwashing continues, and I suppose it will continue, while those responsible for it, like the World Economic Forum, can cancel or ignore anyone who might disagree. And isn't that what the founder, Klaus Schwab, meant when he said that all aspects of our societies and our economies must be revamped? And what's the easiest way to do that? Ignore and cancel anyone who disagrees, even when those in disagreement, like Friends of Science, are quite prepared to engage in a climate debate, quote, with the sound and ancient principle that all pertinent parties should be fully heard, unquote. It hasn't happened, and it's not happening. Worse, governments endorse the absence of debate. You get none here. We are told what to think. Well, not on this program. Count me out on that. Well, before we go, this is not surprising, but it's certainly dumb. Whoever believed the Teals knew anything 
or have read anything about public policy, forget it. By now, of course, the wealthy greenies who voted teal on May 21 are back from their beachside Greek and Italian holidays. But the mob they voted for, the teal independents, seem totally unaware of what's happening in Europe at the moment. The so-called independent member for North Sydney, Kylia Tink, is a, a standout example. Last week, week, Tink said, quote, we must keep up with the pace set by the Europeans, unquote, when it comes to transitioning to net zero and renewable energy. Instead, Tink should have said, we must keep up with the destructive pace set by the Europeans, unquote. The numbers prove my point. In Spain, a country that shut down almost all of its coal-fired power plants, all public buildings, shopping centres, cinemas, theatres, rail stations and airports are being forced to limit heating to a peak of 19 degrees centigrade and air conditioning to a low of 27. In Italy, an ice cream maker displayed on social media an electricity bill from July last year for about 2,000 Australian dollars. His latest July bill was 7,500, even though he used less power this year than he did in 2021. In the Baltic states, a 10-minute hot shower will cost you, by one estimate, about $35. According to Bloomberg, quote, power for delivery from 6pm to 7pm on Wednesday in Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania jumped as high as €4,000, that is $5,800 a megawatt hour. That is a whopping rise of over 1,000% in a year. Meanwhile, the largest candle maker in Scandinavia and the Baltics, Estonia's Hansa Candle AS, has had to cease operations due to high energy prices. And the European people are well aware of what's about to hit them as winter approaches. One senior executive of a company which makes silicon parts for the auto, aerospace and appliance industries was quoted as saying, energy inflation is way more dramatic here than elsewhere. I fear a gradual de-industrialisation of the German economy, unquote. Even our mates in the United Kingdom aren't safe. As reported in a brilliant piece in the Australian newspaper, by their Europe correspondent, Jacqueline Magnate, at the weekend, people in Cornwall have been turning off their freezers to the alarm of health officials, officials warning of food poisoning. Jacqueline wrote, in Newcastle, food charities have been flooded with requests for non-perishable items that don't require turning on the stove. She says, and in London at my house, the hot water's been off for the past month with showering scheduled for immediately after a sweat-inducing run in the park. She said a neighbour has given up toast and community groups advise people to vacuum the backs of their fridges to ensure they're working as efficiently as possible and to shower every second day. She said a pre-panic mode has struck households across Britain as the cost of living crisis approaches uncharted territory." Unquote. And these dopey teals are saying, we must keep up with the pace set by the Europeans. When will they do some homework? According to the Global Energy Monitor, China currently operates 1,082 coal-fired power plants with 92 under construction and 135 more in the pipeline. India is operating 281 coal-fired power plants with 30 under construction and 27 in the pipeline. Russia has 85 coal-fired power stations with one under construction and four in the pipeline. And yet Australia, a country with unparalleled deposits of high energy, low emissions, thermal coal, can't build one new coal-fired power plant. 
Worse than that, Labor and the Greens want every coal-fired power plant closed tomorrow. How often have I said we are embarking on a national economic suicide note? And here I've given you tonight is the proof. Well, that's it from me tonight. Fred Paul coming up in the next hour. I hope you've enjoyed the program. You can email me, alanjones at adh.tv. I mentioned before I've got a bit behind in the correspondence, but you'll all get an answer. I rest assured of that. You are watching Alan Jones on ADH TV. Good night.